Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning and you are the God of second chances and we're the assembly of that and we thank you that in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins once and for all and we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you bear with us and that you continue to guide us through your word and you enable us to persevere through the great promises found in the word and so today we ask as we look at the words spoken to Thyatira that we would take them to heart so that we would not tolerate Jezebel in our midst, but we would also learn to long for the day that you come and that we would persevere to that day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank everyone for praying for me. I am not setting any records in the the 100-yard sprint or anything, but I'm back and I feel a lot better. And I missed all of you last Sunday. I wish I could have been here uh, with you. I want to thank Bob for filling in for me. It's always nice to have his expertise. He can fill in just like that off the top of his head almost. So I want to thank Bob for that. And I also want to thank Mike Hoffman and Mark Montag for all the work that they've done as of late. They've had to take up a lot of slack that I've left, and they've done a lot for the congregation and the wholeness of the body. And so I want to thank these men for that. Yeah. Well, as you can see, we're back looking at the book of, Thya- or the book of Revelation and the address to Thyatira. This is part two And I want you to remember that we had left off last time where we saw that Thyatira was known as the church that was tolerant, but tolerance here is not something that's commendable, but rather condemnable. They tolerated the intolerable. Now, I want to remind you of some of the historical background to Thyatira, because I know it's been a few weeks, but the background to the city will help us understand why it is that Jesus addresses them in the way he does. And so I want to remind you, first of all, that Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. And so if you're going to be a worker in that city, you probably had to belong to one of the trade guilds, like a union. In fact, here in Acts 16, 14, you see that Lydia, she ends up being a believer in Jesus. She's known as a seller of purple fabric. More than likely, she would have had some connections to a trade guild, at least prior to her conversion, and who knows what type of relationship afterward. Now, the issue with the trade guilds is this. Remember, they were run by pagans. And so the trade guilds had these pet gods that would give them prosperity. And so if you wanted to have a business succeed, you would go to temple, and you would find your god with a small g, and through the temple prostitution system or through the meals that you would offer and have to your deity, you would try to garner favor from the god, small g, so that your business would prosper. Now, the chief patron god in Thyatira was Apollo. Now, the reason that's significant is because Apollo was known as the son of God. All right? Do you see how counterfeit that is to the claims of Christ? Well, The reason he was called the son of God is he was the son of Zeus. Zeus is the chief god of the pantheon of the gods that these pagans were serving. And so Apollo, if you wanted a bumper crop or a successful business, you wanted to appease him and you wanted to do the things in the temple that would be pleasing. So think about this. You and I, when we come to Jesus Christ, we are saved once and for all from God's wrath. But we're not just saved from wrath so that God will just leave us in our day-to-day lives. In other words, he's a God that also provides for us. So remember in Matthew 6, I don't like to call it necessarily the Lord's Prayer. 
I like to call it the Lord's model prayer. And remember he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, Give us this day our daily bread. So where does our daily bread and our provision come from? Well, it comes from God. And it comes maybe more particularly from the Son of God, right? He's the one we trust. So there's an imposter, Apollo, and do you see the draw? The pagans are saying, we go to Apollo, we appease him, therefore we have a good business. Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. That's idolatry. It's starting with Christ, but then going on to another God. And so this, I think, helps us understand. If you look in your Bibles, Revelation 2.18, this is why, of course, the Apostle John starts by saying this to Thyatira. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, that's the true Son of God, Jesus, has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. And so, deliberately so, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. It's not Apollo, it's him. Now, here's what happened in their congregation, the church at Thyatira. They had a false teacher And this false teacher was Jezebel. Now, what did Jezebel do? Well, she's a libertine. She believes in something we would call over-realized eschatology, meaning she believed that they were in the end times, which we are now, I guess, after the first advent of Christ, but to the point where there's no resurrection to come, where you don't sin if you're in the body. You can do anything you want. It was that type of libertine idea. And so she says, hey, it's no big deal to go to the temple feast and to engage in the temple prostitutes and can you imagine how enticing that would be to Christians who are worried about losing their job if they're not part of the trade guild and so she becomes very popular by teaching them to sin and therefore they can also keep their job so this is what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira Revelation 2.20 he says but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So notice the problem at Thyatira is they tolerated the intolerable. They tolerated Jezebel. Now, who was this Jezebel? Well, we defined it last time is that this was a real woman who lived, but more than likely her name, her true name is lost on us. So Jesus is using Jezebel as a symbol, of course, that stems from the wicked Phoenician wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. Jezebel back then brought the people of God into idolatry. This Jezebel is doing the same thing. In fact, i got to use the cursor here. I forgot my mouse. Notice the two things she's enticing them to do. She's enticing the bondservants, that would be Christians, to acts of immorality That comes from our term pornea, so that would be sexual immorality, and to things offered to idols. In other words, the temple feasts. And so she's saying to Christians, you can do those things. It's not not a sin. Now, what I want you to do, if you will, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verses 28 through 29. Again, Acts 15, 28 through 29. And I want to show you that this is a direct contradiction to what had been settled already at the Jerusalem council by the apostles. Now, remember, who is an apostle? An apostle is a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, whoever receives you, 
and your words receives me. So if you don't believe the words of the apostles, you don't believe Jesus Christ himself. And that goes all the way back to the idea in the Old Testament of what's called the Shaluak. The one who speaks for the king has the very authority of the king himself. And so notice in Acts 15, 28 through 29, you have James speaking here. He says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Now let's just stop there. Jesus, who is the one who has given us the new covenant, he's the one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's not about putting more regulations upon us than necessary. So what are we prohibited? Well, that we would abstain, it says, from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled. Well, let's just stop there. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you can't be a partaker in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you're going to be a partaker in the table of Yahweh, the table of the Lord, Jesus Christ, you can't be a partaker with these demons. Okay? Who are you going to trust for your provision? Is it Jesus or is it these demonic beings? It's one or the other. So they would, that's what it was about. It was about idolatry. Well, notice he also says, and from fornication. There's your sexual immorality. And he says, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. So, Jezebel then is teaching what? She's teaching something in direct contradiction to the apostles. All right? And the problem was they tolerated it. In our society, of course, today, it's tolerance uber alles, Tolerance above all things. But we see in Scripture that we must not tolerate the wrong things. The things that contradict the Scriptures. Things that God regards as sin. So, let me... Um, show you something. I think this raises the question, how do we deal with false teaching? If, in fact, the church at Thyatira tolerated a false teacher and they should not have, well, I think it raises the question, how do we deal with false teaching today? And what I want to do is bring you through some of the passages that kind of give us the tools in our tool belt that we should all, I think, be aware of in order to deal with false teaching. Okay, And so I'm going to give you just three different principles to kind of put in your your lexicon to think about when you're dealing with a false teacher. The first category is if you're dealing with a teacher, for instance, at a Bible study, and you suspect that teacher to be a believer, how would you handle that person if you know what they're teaching is an error? And I think the default passage that we should always go to when we're dealing with other believers, no matter what the sin may be, if it's false teaching or perhaps a wayward action, it should be Matthew 18. Now, notice Matthew 18, 15 Jesus says this, he says, if your brother sins. Now, let me stop there. In some of your versions, if you have an NRSV, even if you have an ESV, I believe, it'll say, if your brother sins against you. Okay, so in the King James Version, I think, has the same thing. Now, which is correct? Here's the NASB, it has, if your brother sins. Well, more than likely, the earlier manuscripts have, if your brother sins. And what's more likely, when you start looking at textual criticism is scholars tended to add things rather than subtract. And because our earliest manuscripts have the reading as the NASB has it, I think that's probably the better reading. Okay, again, scholars tended to add rather than subtract. So my point in saying that is if your brother sins doesn't mean it's not just against you. This is something that if you see your brother sinning, it's a lovely thing to confront him, but notice how it's to be done. You go show him his fault in what? In private. All right? Now, the other thing I want you to see there is notice this is about a brother. 
So this is about a believer in Jesus Christ. The reason I mention that, tell you a story. Years ago, I'm in seminary, and I am in a systematic theology class. And the guy who's teaching it is a rabid heretic. Not only does he not like the gospel, he never even talks about the gospel. He dislikes the gospel so much. Okay, so he's teaching systematic theology. His name is Laron Schultz. If you ever see his material, he's a heretic. And what he teaches, like, let me give you an example. The Bible clearly teaches that at death for a believer, there's a separation of the body that goes into the ground, and the immaterial portion of the believer goes to be with the Lord, the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, Aaron Schultz contradicted that. He says, no, that's not true. And I thought, well, he's got to show some biblical evidence for this in his view. I was wondering what he was going to show. He did not. What he showed was something not from the divine revelation, but from general revelation. He showed an experiment. It wasn't even an experiment. It was an accident. In 1848, there was a man named Phineas Gage that was in a dynamite explosion. And he got shrapnel in his head. And he... apparently, this is the story, his personality changed, but he was still the same person. Ergo, from that, Laurent Schultz says, look, you can't have a separation of body and spirit, which I still don't get even the connection, okay? But what should grieve all of us is here you have a man who's taking something from the general revelation, and he's supplanting the clear teaching from the divine or special revelation found in Scripture. And so that was the final straw. I couldn't take it anymore. So I go to the provost, and Bob and I ended up having a confrontation. That's how I got to know Bob. Was, and so God works in strange ways. It was a great blessing to sit under a heretic because I got to know Bob out of the... <laughs> he had to help confront me or confront uh, Schultz for me. But when I went to the provost, I said, look, this man is clearly teaching error. And you know what he said? Did you follow Matthew 18? Now, what does Matthew 18 say? It says, if your brother sins... What indication did I have that he was a brother? He didn't even like the Bible. Okay? And so don't let people hide behind that. If there's a heretic in a seminary and they say, hey, did you follow Matthew 18? No. It doesn't wash. This is for believers. But the big principle that we want to see here and how we handle believers is if they have a sin, and we're talking about false teaching specifically, is you go to them in private. Now, why do we do this in private? Because the principle we see in Scripture is we not, never want to take people who are called out of the kingdom of darkness, who have had their sins forgiven, we never want to embarrass them corporately, if, if at all possible. Okay? Now, for instance, we see principles like this in Proverbs ten twelve, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Okay, so... In the body of Christ, the idea is we don't want to air one another's laundry because we are those who are what? Forgiven, right? So we handle it in a private manner. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter 4.8. And as you're turning to 1 Peter 4.8, I'm going to show you this again, what Peter says about what love does. What's interesting is you're turning to 1 Peter 4.8 is there's a call to love. And as you'll see, love calls for a covering over of a multitude of sins. But it's grounded in the coming of Christ, in the coming wrath. In verse 7, it says, the time for the end of all things is near. 
Okay, so again, the nearness of the parousia, the coming of Christ and the coming wrath, is always the motivating factor for godly living. Okay, so in verse 8, 1 Peter 4, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So the idea then is if we have a brother or sister sin, what we want to do is be those who cover it over, if at all possible. We don't want it to be aired in front of the world or in the community of believers. That's the idea. Now, that doesn't mean we don't address it, because look at Jesus saying you address it. And notice what he says. If he listens to you, you've won your brother, and it's over. Okay, it's over. You've helped them, and let's say it's a false teacher. You've led them to the truth in Scripture. They say, you know what, you're right. Scripture's clear. It's all over at that point. Okay? But notice, and again, we're talking about not just differences of opinion and you know, passages that I think are difficult. We're dealing with serious teaching. That's how I would think of it. If they don't repent, what do we do? Verse 16, it says, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So here we have more now. We have the witnesses. So that, and here's a quotation, Deuteronomy 19.15, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every act, fact may be confirmed. So now you have other brothers and sisters that are saying, Yes, this is sin. This is what the scripture says. And you have them come alongside you and confront the person. Okay? Now, if they still don't acquiesce to that, the next step, of course, is to tell it to the wider body. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. That's a future passive uh, construction there. Uh, future perfect passive construction. He says, the earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall, of course, it goes on to say, have been loosed in heaven. So here's the point. We have three steps. We go in private. We take one or two witnesses with us, and then it goes before the church. Now, the idea of it going before the church is the church is to add pressure upon the wayward sinner so that they'll want to change. They'll want to repent. And that's why it's told to the wider body so that the whole body can exert pressure upon the person. But we've got to remember that the whole purpose of this type of discipline is always restorative. Okay, the purpose of church discipline is always for the purpose of restoring a brother or sister. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. I want to show you what Paul said about restoring a brother. In 1 Corinthians 5, remember this man who was sinning? He was having immoral relationships with his father's wife. So this was a real sick puppy that they were dealing with. And Paul says, look, you have to exclude him from the congregation. And they weren't doing it. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul does do it. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, here's the purpose. Purpose statement, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be handed over to Satan? Think of the church as the realm of God. That's where the spirit is. And so to be cast outside of the church is the realm of darkness, the realm of Satan, Paul is saying that he was expelled from the congregation because what happens to a true believer is they long for the means of grace. They long to have fellowship. They long to have the word of God, the Lord's Supper, prayer. And so a true Christian, if they're kicked out of the congregation, it will lead them to repentance. But if they're not a true believer, remember 1 John 2.19 
They went out from us because they were never of us. And so it purifies the church. Okay, but notice the purpose that Paul had in kicking the brother out wasn't so that he would be destroyed, but that he would be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the coming judgment that we're studying about in the book of Revelation. So that was the goal, that he'd be saved, that he would repent and come back to his senses. Okay? Uh, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 2, I think it's the same man being talked about. 2 Corinthians 2, the man must have repented, and the Corinthians wouldn't let him back in the congregation. Well, then Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, no, you've got to let him back in, otherwise you cause excessive grief. So if you have someone that's under church discipline, you've got to let them back in if they repent. Okay? So here, Bob and I have been talking a lot about the means of grace. Remember in Acts 2.42, we devote, our thing, devote ourselves to four things. What do we devote ourselves to? The apostles' teaching, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and fellowship. In Acts 2.42, the church devoted themselves to those things. So think of that as your burger. I'm going to make an analogy here. But the top bun for means of grace is baptism. But you don't devote yourself to baptism week after week or however often you meet. Why? Because baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of leaving Egypt. Did Israel go back and forth in the Red Sea? No, they left it. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. There's no going back to Egypt. So baptism is about our identity in Christ. We're dead with him, but we're also positionally raised to newness of life with him. So baptism is done once. So that's the top bun. So we only do that once. We devote ourselves to the four things that I'd mentioned from Acts 2.42, but there's a bottom bun, as it were, and that's church discipline. And you don't devote yourself to that. Why? Because if you're devoting yourself to church discipline, that means you must be sinning it up. But it's used by God to bring wayward sinners back so that they'd be spared on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Norm. Uh, this whole, whole idea of... Uh you know, in love, trying to help a brother, so forth. Yeah. just happens. Last night I was reading uh, Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. I think Amen. the emphasis on the with all wisdom yes. to do that. Yes. That, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. That's exactly right. In fact, great point. We might talk about Second uh, Timothy 2.25 in just a moment. Um, there, Paul also says, if you have to crack, do it in gentleness so that perhaps God may grant them repentance. And so we see there the doctrine that God is the one who has to enable salvation, but our job is to gently correct and warn and let God do the work. Yeah, and so there's the wisdom there, I think, that is being alluded to in the Colossians passage. Absolutely. Great catch, Norm. Thank you. Uh, well, so here, I want to move on to another category then. I want to deal with, and this is a tool that I think is given to the church and particularly the leadership. Let's say you're dealing with a factious man or an unbeliever. And this is a passage that comes into play, I think, is Titus 3, 10 through 11. Titus 3, 10 through 11, Paul says, now remember Titus, who is he? He's a pastor. He is an elder at the church in Crete. Okay, and so this is how he's supposed to function Paul commands him to reject, he says, a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, what we have to realize about this factious man is a factious man 
it can certainly be a man who's teaching false doctrine. And that was the case in the book of Titus. But the term heretikos, which is the adjective used here for factious man, or for factious, first had to do with choosing to separate. Okay, now the reason that's significant is because it tells us then the idea of a factious man isn't just related to false teaching, although normally it probably will, but it can be any action that ends up bringing division within a church. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have somebody who says, you know what, the tile all has to be blue. And if the tile isn't blue, I'm writing letters. <laughs> and I'm going to create a faction. That's being factious. Why? Because they're trying to bind everyone to what's not bound in Scripture. Now, I guess you could call that a teaching issue, but do you see, it's not just a heretical doctrine denying the deity of Christ, but it's something that ends up causing division. That's the idea of factious. So I want to show some biblical evidence for that definition. Who had the Acts 5.17? Brian did. Perfect. The guy with the microphone. Acts 5.17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Okay, so everyone see that term sect? That comes from the noun heresies. Okay, so you see the sect of the Sadducees, there was division. They had divided from others. So you can see the root idea then behind heresies or hereticos is division, but you and I associate it with heresy, which is false, false teaching. But you see how they came to be blended together because typically you had division because of false teaching. Okay, let me show you another one. Uh, Galatians 5.20. I think Norm had that one. Everyone turn your Bibles if you have a chance to Galatians 5.20. Hold on, Norm. But we'll wait okay. till people turn their Bibles to it. Okay, actually I'll start at verse 19. Oh, sure. Thank you. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. Thank you. And so the factions there would be, again, the noun heresies, which is related to the hereticos for factious. So that would be divisions in the body. And how those divisions occur, they might be through false teaching, but it might be through the actions of a, a brother or sister. Okay, so... How do we deal with this factious person? Well, whether it's from their false teaching or the way they're acting, notice he says, after a first and second warning, you're to reject them. Okay, now this is something that's given to the leadership to protect the body. The question is, what kind of warning should we give? Well, Norman alluded to that in Colossians 3, and I think we see it. You can jot this down. You don't have to turn to it. But 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says, if you have to correct, remember Timothy is a pastor, He says, do so in gentleness, so that perhaps God will grant them repentance. Okay, so the point is the warning implies a teaching so that they learn what correct doctrine is, but it's also a warning to say if you keep doing this behavior, you're going to undergo church discipline. Okay, so they are to be rejected after the second warning. Now, Paul gives us a grounding of why it's acceptable to do this. Verse 11, he says knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is self-condemned. Why is a person who is factious self-condemned? Because they're separating themselves from the believers. And again, what does it say in 1 John 2.19? Turn your Bibles to 1 John 2.19. 
Uh, first John 2.19 says that they went out from us because they were what? Never of us, right? And then he goes on to say that if they had been with us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So the point is the person has self-condemned themselves by separating themselves from the body. Steve. Hold on, we'll get a microphone to you. Eric, this, this uh, definition of factious, um, I think, is a fine line in some cases. And I realize the examples you gave were pretty definite. Yeah. You know, when, when someone is really, you know, off, off key with a doctrine or something. Yeah. But when uh, the question comes, when there's a, a little bit of an uncertainty about um, maybe doctrine... I'll use the example of the rapture, for example. Sure. Uh, somebody might believe in a tr- pre-trib rapture, and someone else in the same church might believe in a in a pre-wrath Absolutely. rapture, and they just really feel strongly about believing in the pre-wrath um, example That's or right. you know rapture, and so then they would tell their friends in the in the same body. And there might be a few in the same body that would agree with them based on their findings in Scripture. Yeah. And, and yet the, the whole rest of the body believes, based on the teaching from the, from the leadership, that it's a, a pre-trib rapture. Sure. Uh, now, is, is this a factious man because he's, he's just got a different opinion and he's, he's telling other people about what he thinks and feels? You know what I'm saying? Right, it right. Gets, I, gets I don't to be a so. fine line and... and where do, you, where do you draw that line? Yeah, you know what? I, I don't think it is, and I'll tell you why. Because there are some things on the non-essentials we can, we can have liberty, I think, to disagree about. I think that it becomes a factious issue when it creates division in the sense where you don't have fellowship anymore. We have fellowship, and the one, uh, this is arbitrary. I won't say that it's found in the Scripture, but think about the five solas. If something attacks one of the five solas, like Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, the glory of God alone... I think we have an issue. Um, in other words, that to me is a good barometer to say, look, this is important enough where we're having a false teaching going on. But when it comes to ideas or subsidiary doctrines like the timing of the rapture, that's something we don't need to divide over. And so good believers within a body can agree to disagree on that. But at the end of the day, what, what can happen is you could have pre-trib people say, you know what? I won't tolerate anybody who's pre-wrath. They could be factious, or it could be the other way. Correct. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's the way that Christians interact on that disagreement. And, um, and again, I, I think that even if there's disagreement, and I, I don't think you immediately go to a factious man if someone's being obstinate. I think it's a, it's a process. But the point is you could see where people could be factious over a doctrine like that. But it's not the difference over the doctrine itself. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so that's where the... Where the question comes is where yeah. do you draw the line on, on someone like that that is a born-again believer. There's no doubt about that. And he just has very strong different opinion about where Scripture comes, comes through on certain points. Yeah, again, I think you can agree to disagree, and you can all remain within the same body. But what I think factious would indicate is all of a sudden now you're having a separation because of something, and I a separation of a body. So let's say I said, look, if you don't hold to pre-trib... You know, you can all pound sand and you're done and you're not going to, you know, I think I'm being factious, right? Right. Um, if someone said it from the pre-wrath perspective, I think that's being factious. 
So my point is it's the ends of, it's when you divide over a non-essential, that would be the factious behavior. It's not holding to the doctrines themselves and saying, well, here's my evidence, here's your evidence, we have to agree to disagree. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's when people end up creating divisions over it. Does okay, that make sense? So then, so then that person might start to circulate their ideas about the pre-wrath idea more than just one or two or five or ten people and, and really push that, then it becomes factious. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not necessarily even saying that. I'm not against... I, I think the idea is, look, that doctrine can be taught by anybody in the congregation, but my point is if... Let's say I say, well, no, I don't think that's true. I think we can have a healthy debate within a church. Gotcha. But when it becomes factious is when it becomes a litmus test for fellowship. Okay? If someone says you either hold to this doctrine that we can disagree over or I won't have fellowship with you, that's being factious. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. But I think my, my point in, in raising the issue here is that we need to be careful about who we call factious based on their different opinions in the church. And so we can still, Absolutely. Have, the, still have the freedom to be, uh, think yep. differently without being afraid of the leadership calling us factious, if you follow what I'm saying. Exactly right. So, um, again, I'm kind of taking the how do we deal with a Jezebel, okay? And I'm trying to, but you're right. So what does Jezebel teach? Jezebel's teaching it's okay to engage in fornication and to uh, idolatry at the temple. Well, obviously that's beyond scripture. We're bound right, to right, not do that. There's no, uh, another one would be, let's say a Jehovah Witness, or let's say you take a, a Seventh-day Adventist, says, you know what? We really all should be meeting here on Saturday. Well, Paul says in Colossians 2, to not let anyone judge us with respect to new moon festivals or Sabbath days. And so we're commanded not to allow that to occur. That would be factious behavior that goes beyond Scripture. But something like the timing of the rapture, that's something that I think we can agree to disagree on unless someone is going to plant their flag on it and say, I'm dividing over it. And either you hold to that doctrine or I'm separating from you. I'll, I'll create separation. I think it can become factious then, at that point. At that point, you would, the leadership would go to that person and say, You've got to yeah, look, you can division. hold your view, but don't, don't make it a, a, a basis of fellowship, that doctrine, okay? And, yeah. and so we can have genuine disagreements and not have it be a factious you, man you issue. You get my point, though, about yep. being careful about who, exactly who you call right. factious for whatever reason. And I think it goes back to what uh, Norm was saying in the Colossians 3 passage. That's where wisdom comes in, you know, in understanding absolutely. the scriptures. Yep. Absolutely. Well said. Yep. Thanks. Mike, you looks like you got something percolating. Oh, Okay. Okay, all right, you're all right. <laughs> it looked like you had a deep thought, so I just, all right. Gotcha. Well, thanks, uh, Steve. That was a great comment. And what I want to do then is I want to just go on to the next principle, and that is this public false teaching should be corrected publicly. And I'll give you a, a principle uh, in Galatians 2 here for that. Now, remember, this is a descriptive passage of what Paul did, but I'll show you where it's prescribed for the church elsewhere. Notice what Paul did. Remember you have Peter who who is a Jew, who lives like a Gentile under the New Covenant, but who demands Gentiles live like Jews. Galatians 2.14, Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, there's Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so the idea then is Paul is addressing a false teaching and false actions by another apostle. Okay, so if Bob in a CIC article takes on a false teacher like Joyce Myers, 
Can someone say, hey, Bob, you didn't follow Matthew 18? I don't think so. I think it's this principle. Hey, if an apostle can be called on his public teaching in public, so can any other teacher who has it publicly disseminated. So let's integrate that with Matthew 18 very quickly. Matthew 18, I think you can go to a brother or sister in private, but if it's a public teaching, it has to be addressed publicly. And I'll show you further evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5.20. 1 Timothy 5.20, this is how we handle wayward elders. Elders are afforded witnesses as well. You can't just bring accusations against them without a witness. Um, Oh, you know what? I don't have my first... I never gave that passage out to anybody, so I'll have to turn my Bible too. 1 Timothy 5.20. It says, as for those, and the, the context is elders who are either teaching or doing something immorally, if they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So notice the same phrase, the presence of all. And now here's the purpose, so that the rest may stand in fear. So the idea is if the elder is sinning, they're obviously going to have public ramifications because it's going to affect the entire body. And so how is that addressed? Well, Paul's commanding that it be addressed in front of them all. Okay? And so the principle that I think we see in Scripture is if there's something stated in here, it's handled in here. If it's done um, at a public setting, you have to handle that correction in a public setting. I think that's the principle that we see in Scripture. Anybody have any questions on that? Okay, so I hope that helps. So if you're dealing, again, with a single believer, they have a little Bible study, think about this. They're teaching something in error. Pull them aside and say, you know what? The Scriptures teaches this. And then say, you know what, if they say, you know what, you're absolutely right, the scripture's clear on this, have them address it with their little Bible study group. That's how it should be handled. I think that's how we integrate these ideas. But try to handle a brother or sister um, always in private first. I think that's a good rule of thumb from Matthew 18. So that's how I think we should handle these things practically. And again, the Titus 3.10 passage, the thing that I think that protects us from is it gives the leadership an ability to go after a false teacher and not have to go through uh, all of Matthew 18. It's, no, this is false teaching. It's heresy. We won't tolerate it. You have two warnings, and there's correction, and then they're gone. They're self-condemned because they're the ones who are separating themselves from the body of Christ. Okay, now let's move back then to Revelation itself. Let's go on to verse 21 where we see Jesus will punish Jezebel and her followers. He says to her, I, or to the body of Christ, he says, I gave her time to repent. And notice he says, she does not want to repent of her immorality. The not wanting to repent is what's called a durative force of the present tense, meaning she is continuously obstinate in not wanting to repent. She wants to remain in her immorality. So what is Jesus going to do? Verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Now, what is this bed of sickness that's being alluded to? Well, I think it's in parallel construction with great tribulation. So it's not that, well, Jezebel gets a bed of sickness, but all of her followers get the great tribulation. They're really one and the same. What Jesus is using is a play on words. She brought the congregation into a bed of fornication. He's going to bring her into a bed of judgment. Okay, and that bed of judgment is consistent then with the great tribulation. 
The question is, what is this great tribulation? Was it a localized judgment that would come upon the church in Thyatira during the church age? Or is it referring to Daniel's 70th week, the wrath of God that would be poured out in the future? And I think it's the latter. Okay, I think the great tribulation that's being referred to here is referring to the judgment that comes when Christ comes to save his people and to judge the world. All right, now let me give you some evidence that that is indeed the case. First of all, great tribulation here. This isn't bulletproof, but it's what's called a narthrus, meaning there's no definite article. Later on in Revelation 7.14, it has the definite article in front of it. Robert Thomas, a really competent scholar, says the reason for that is more than likely the first time it's alluded to, it doesn't have the definite article. It's great tribulation. But the second time it's alluded to, it's the great tribulation because it's referring back to this. Does that make sense? Now, in and of itself, that's not conclusive, but notice verse 23. Very interesting language is used here. Jesus says, I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, what's interesting, kill, and I hate to say this as a pastor, but it's one of my favorite terms in all of Greek, because when you say it, it sounds like you intend to kill. Apocatino! And you just, you expect to see somebody goose-stepping as they're saying it. You know, it just sounds, it sounds nasty, doesn't it? Apocatino! Uh, kill. But what's interesting is he says, I will kill Apocatino with pestilence. Pestilence is thanatos, death. So literally, it's, I will kill her children with death. But in the context, thanatos is used here as pestilence. Now, here's why this is important. Pestilence is a reference, if you look in your Bibles, to Revelation 6, 8. It's part of the judgment that comes in the tribulation period. Okay, so let's go back to the Old Testament for just a moment. God promised to Israel in Deuteronomy 28 that if they would sin and break covenant... He would judge them with four items, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. The sword is always primary. That's warfare. And because their nation would be so decimated because of warfare, they would be susceptible to famine, pestilence, and even being attacked by wild beasts. That's how much devastation they would suffer in warfare. So those four things were poured out on Israel. You see it in Ezekiel 14, 21, because of Judah's sin. And it's the wrath of God. Well, what happens is when we get into Daniel's 70th week, and what we're looking at in Revelation 6, 8, are those four things, sword, which is warfare, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, are now poured out, not on Israel, but the entire world. So it's as if God has shifted his wrath towards his people for breaking covenant now to the entire world because they've rejected Messiah. All right? And so this idea of killing the children with pestilence, that's exactly what happens in the tribulation period. And so that's the judgment that I think is being referred to here. Now, notice in verse 23, too, it's very interesting. He says that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. That's a direct quotation from Jeremiah 17.10. In Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says, I am Yahweh, and I know and search the hearts and minds, and I will give to each one according to their deeds. Now, why is that important? Well, think about it. You're going to have a Jehovah Witness or two in your day that will come to the door and say Jesus isn't God. Well, here in Revelation 2.23, Jesus does what Yahweh does. He's the one who understands the minds and judges according to people's deeds. Why? Because he's Yahweh. He's God. 
So another clear affirmation of the deity of Christ right there in Revelation 2.23. Now, the one question I want to throw out there for discussion is, notice he says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And right away, we should put our systematic theology hat on and say, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by faith alone. What is this business of Jesus judging us according to our deeds? So I want to throw that out there. How would you handle that? You have someone on the street ask you that. Hey, if you're saved by faith alone, how is it that we're being judged according to our deeds? Yeah, Paul. Um, We will be judged according to our deeds. And our deeds, however, do not bring us to God. Our deeds bring us to repentance and to sin. Oh, of course we all will be, but you're with our Lord or you're not with our Lord. Yeah. Amen. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty succinct. Yep. Um, and there'll be different degrees. Yeah, that's exactly right at the Bama seed. Yeah. Um, here, here's the way I, I think that's a great answer. Here's the way I think we should think of it. Think about John six twenty nine. Jesus says, this is the first work that you would do to do the work of God, that you would believe in the one whom he had sent. And the term there is ergon. It's a work. Okay? So the very first work that we do, according to Jesus, is believe upon him. But it's something that only God grants. Remember John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay, so in a sense, remember you and I are commanded to believe the gospel, and sometimes that's referred to as a work, the first of works, okay? But I think a better way of thinking of it, that's certainly true, but think about in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone and all of that by his grace alone. But what does it say in verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus in the sphere of him. So we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So the idea is if you're really saved, you have saving faith. Your actions and doctrines, your works reflect that. Okay? And so the idea of Jezebel goes to a a bed of fornication, the reason is is because she has false belief, okay? So true believers end up acting on what what they believe. Abraham is saved by faith alone, Genesis 15, 6. He acts on it in Genesis 22. He's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. He acts on what he believes, and I think that's the implication here. Okay, I don't want to bog down here, but let me keep moving. Jesus exempt the rest of the believers from further burden. Remember, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. So he doesn't want to unnecessarily burden believers with any other thing than to restrain or refrain from Jezebel's teaching. He says, but I say to you, verses 24 through 25, the rest of you who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. What's interesting here is Jesus says that the true believers in this church... They did not hold to the teaching of Jezebel. The term hold there in Greek is echo. It just simply means to have, no matter how loosely. They don't have even loosely the false teachings of Jezebel. But later, notice in verse 25, he uses a far stronger term, kratao, which means you must hold fast to the true doctrine. So a true believer is one who doesn't even hold loosely to the false doctrines but has to hold on tightly to the true doctrines that come from Christ. I think that's the image that we're designed to see here. So notice he says that 
these are the ones who are the true believers. They have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. So this, when it says as they call them, that must have been a saying from Jezebel and her followers. So the question is, what were the deep things of Satan? Here's what I think was going on. Jezebel and many other false teachers in Asia Minor had something called an over-realized eschatology, meaning they believed that they were in the age where they could not sin. So think about Corinth for a minute. Why were the Corinthians denying the resurrection? Because they thought there wasn't a resurrection to come. They had arrived. Why were they denying marriage and saying that you shouldn't marry? Because angels don't marry and they were so spiritual. Why were they saying it's okay to have these temple practices where they would have you know, a meal at the pagan feast? Well, because they were so spiritual, they knew an idol was nothing. Okay? Why did they forbid marriage? Why did they do all those things? Because they thought they had arrived. Jezebel is saying, you can go to the temple feast and you're not sinning. You're not sinning because you have arrived, you are spiritual, and you know what these other weak ones don't. And so I think you have an incipient form of Gnosticism. Okay, Gnosis is we know what other people don't. We know that an idol isn't anything, and therefore we can go to the feast. What does Paul say? No, you can't be a partaker of the, the table of the Lord and the table of a demon. Okay, so he prohibits it, but they think it's okay. All right? So I think that's what's going on with Jezebel. Now, we see other in indications of that in teachings around Asia Minor. For instance, in 1 John, notice what's very interesting, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. I like to use this passage a lot, but listen to what he says. John says, if we say that we have no sin. Now, let me stop there. I think that may have been a mantra with these false teachers in Asia Minor. They're claiming that they can't sin. Why? Because they're spiritual. Therefore, you can have the temple prostitutes. You can do anything you want. We don't sin. We're spiritual. And then he says, well, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us if we have that view. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we, he says the same mantra again, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the mantra in Asia Minor to these hyper-spiritualists, these libertines, these people who believe that they were spiritual and couldn't sin, was we can do anything we want. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. I'm the Lord of the church. And what he decides is binding from his apostles and scripture is indeed binding on all of us. Okay? So that's what's going on there, I think. That's the deep things of Satan that's being referred to. Now, notice he says at the very end, verse 25, he's talking to the true believers. Nevertheless, what you have, which is true doctrine, he says, hold fast until I come. Over and over and over again in Scripture, the imminent coming of Christ is not just a motivating factor, it is the motivating factor for holding on to valid doctrine and to persevere. Now let me just show you a summary thus far in the book of Revelation. This is an imminent summary brought to you by Eric Dalma, who is concerned about the doctrine. Okay, let's begin with Revelation 1.1. Let's remind ourselves how the whole book began. It began with imminence, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must take place soon. Notice the last phrase, remember, the things that must take place soon. That is a direct allusion. Write it down, wake a neighbor, tell a friend, Daniel 2.28, because Daniel 2.28 was about the coming kingdom of Christ. 
And Daniel said these are the things that must take place in the last days. Revelation 1.1 says these are the things that must take place not in the last days. Why? Because we're in the last days. They're soon. They're at hand. And then the very end of the book, chapter 22, has the same phrase. The entire book of Revelation is bookend by imminence. That this coming of Christ and his kingdom is at hand. It really is imminent. Well, then notice what we've seen in the churches. Revelation 2.5, this was to the church at Ephesus. Jesus says, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand. Here's the church uh, at Pergamum. He says, repent or else I am coming to you quickly. I think quickly there, tachos should be rendered imminently. It's not the idea that when he comes, he comes quickly, he's fast, he's a, or even, it's the idea of imminence. So put that in your notes. And I will make war against them in the, the sword of my mouth. Here's the one we saw today, Revelation 2.25. What do you have, hold fast until I come. We see uh, the church of Sardis next time. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Does a thief give a precursor before he comes? No. That's the way Jesus is coming. It's imminent. It's at hand. Same thing in the book uh, addressed to here to Philadelphia, the letter to Philadelphia. It says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And again, you'll see it in Revelation 16, 15, Revelation 22, 7, Revelation 22, 12, Revelation 22, 20. This same idea, he's coming and it's at hand. It is the motivating factor for godly living. Why? Because when he comes, it's salvation for the people of God, but it's judgment on those like Jezebel. And that's, I think that's the warning that we see. Now, one final great promise. Jesus promises overcomers that they will rule with him. Very beautiful here. Revelation 2, 26 through 29, he says, he who overcomes, now let me stop there. Bless your pastor. Who's an overcomer? We are exactly. First John 5, 5, he who overcomes is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How are you an overcomer? By believing in Jesus. But notice it's associated with, if you really believe, you act on it. And that's what he says, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Now here's a citation, Psalm 2, 8 through 9. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star... He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is our first look at the millennial kingdom. Notice the promise that's given to the Messiah, the Son, in Psalm 2, 8 through 9, is now given to every believer, that we will reign with him and we'll have authority over the nations. This is exciting, and what this means is that one day Christ is going to reign over this world, and so all the goofy politics you see today, it's all going to be done away with. Yeah, hallelujah. Amen. He's going to rule over the nations. And he's going to do so so that you and I will reign with him. In fact, when we get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, it says that you and I will reign what? On a cloud strumming a harp in heaven? No, it says that they will reign upon the earth. Show that to your amillennial friends. Where's the reign coming? It's coming to earth for a thousand years, just as Revelation 20 teaches. Notice also how tough Jesus is. It says that he will, with a rod of iron, he'll break the pottery here and into pieces. Notice at the end there. Think about this pottery in the ancient Near East. The way they would make it is they would take the pottery and they would put it in the hot Mideast sun so that it would bake, but it would become very brittle. 
Jesus is so powerful, he's depicted as a strong man with a rod who can literally just shatter the pottery and it flies into a million pieces. That's the one that we serve. And so today it looks like it's the other way. It's our enemies that are in control. They're the ones who had all the power. That's the way it was at Thyatira. And so think of the poor man who says, you know, how am I going to feed my little ones? I have to go to the trade guild. And the trade guild demands that I go serve another god, small g. And yet who's going to take care of my little ones? If I don't join, they don't eat. Jesus is saying to that Christian, no, I'm the one who has all authority. And one day you will as well. Remain faithful to me. The last thing he promises is the morning star. What is the morning star? I'm not exactly sure. There's been a lot of guesses. The morning star is alluded to again in Revelation 22:16. That's Jesus. But notice here he says, I will give him the morning star. And it seems curious that Jesus would say, I'll give you myself. That might be what he's saying. But here's how I think we should put it together. What's very interesting is in Isaiah 14, verse 12. Remember there's that rejection of the king of Babylon? Let me scroll down. I'm going to read this to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 14, 12. And I'm just gonna, I don't have time to go much further than this, but just notice Isaiah 14, 12. Again, who animates Babylon? Well, behind Babylon is ultimately Satan. But this is a rejection of the king of Babylon. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And so Babylon represents man's attempt to usurp God's authority. It's real. I'm not saying it's just symbolism, but, but it's also a symbol. And so who animates Babylon? Ultimately, Satan is. And so Satan there is being called ultimately the morning star. But Jesus is going to take that entire system and he's going to throw it out. He's the morning star. And so when he rises, this new age dawns. The darkness is expelled and what he's inviting us to is to partake in that. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, as dark as the world is, that's exciting to me. You and I live in Thyatira as well where people are saying, hey, you have to go partake in this evil. You have to accept homosexuality. And if you won't, we won't tolerate you. Jesus saying to us today, we hold to the true doctrines found in the scriptures, and one day it's you and I who will stand with Christ and we won't tolerate them. The book, the end of the book says we win. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear that today, especially as we see the world become so dark. That's the great promise for believers. So with that, let me just have us all bow our heads in prayer and let's just thank God for these great promises. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that in you we have the victory. We have a glorious kingdom to look forward to and that we will rule even over the nations and angels. We long forward to that day. And Heavenly Father, take this information and plant it deep in our hearts for the dark days to come and for the difficult times so that we may persevere and never lose sight of the great promises that you have for us, that we would remain firm in our commitment to your true doctrine and the deeds that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.